0: So in a lot of my philosophies and readings and dialogues, I come on things that are two-in-one, two things, but not two. For example, um, in uh, in the world of Buddhism, you have 10 worlds. Well, the the worlds of cause awakened and voice hearers aren't really stacked. They're sort of considered uh, two-in-one or uh, amoebus. uh Wayne Shorter, rest in peace, Wayne Shorter, talked about uh, a lot, uh, e- and even in his triloquy interview, how he reads about scientists who suggest that the chicken and the egg emerged simultaneously. One mm-hmm. didn't come before uh, the, the other. Mm-hmm. All, all of this, just as examples, to say we've recorded two episodes in one day before. But this time around, you know the the dates and the timelines and what goes where, <laughs> it blurs kind, kind of kind of blurs. So between this week and next week, just consider it, you know, an an extended episode. <laughs> or maybe mm. maybe over two weeks. Or so there there are certain things that uh, were meant for this week that'll be next week. For example, um, the way that we highlight Wayne Shorter that'll be on next week's Opus, even though we recorded it today. But Two-in-one, as we're always uh, trying to, as I'm trying to explain here today anyway. Two-in-one like our friends, uh, beginning with the Schubert Club. Since 1882, Schubert Club has been creating inspiring musical experience in the Twin Cities. More on them here in a bit. Also, huge thanks to our friends at Salestina. Salestina is classical music's wingman by day they're world-class performers and studio musicians who've played on your favorite films but by night they're on a mission to broaden the definition of what classical music was is and can be more on them here in a bit is there a way that you can think about the two but but not two another example uh, a, a really uh, you know sort of basic example that's often, put out there is the person and the shadow. You aren't your shadow, but your shadow couldn't be if it weren't for you. So Mm -hmm. it's two things, but not two. Have you ever think about really heady things like that? Sometimes, but uh, I don't know if that was one of them.
1: <laughs> so if my shadow is me, <laughs> so now I'm going to be up all night thinking about that. Thanks.
0: <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> well, you know, one of the reasons why we're doing this two in one uh, in, in one day and trying to negotiate what episodes goes on what week uh, is because I'll be in New York. And, you know, that's uh, as, as I talked to you about just something about being there It's like being at a light jog. Instead of walking through life, you have to kind of jog through life (laughs) when you're there. You're always a little sweaty. You're always up a a little late. But that's just something that people love. And uh, every time I head into New York, I'm sure I've shared this on the podcast before. I have to get into uh, Alicia Keys' City of Gods Part Mm. 2. You know, Mm. New York City, please go easy on me.
2: I'm begging you.
0: That's typically the one I I listen to when I'm getting into New York City. Are just you flying trying, in just, at night? Yep. Just, or actually, this trip will be in the middle of the day. I think we take a morning flight out. Mm-hmm. So uh, when we get there, it'll be in the middle of the day. Anyway, just all of the positive juju to get me through. <laughs> I, I love being there, but it's just... Exhausting both of those things again, too, but not like too. But both of those things can be and it still be a positive experience. Okay. I mean, shoveling snow here is exhausting and dealing with that sort of thing, you know. So instead of being behind the wheel negotiating uh snow flurries and staying out of the black ice, it's just a different type of you know thing, but one that is more physical. You're more on your feet, it is you who is out in public, not you in your car or you in. You know, the grocery store behind your mask it's It's just a, a different sort of personal <laughs> engagement of just this living thing that is the city. anyway. Alicia Keys really comes to mind for me because I think about her as one of those seminal new york artists the uh, the tune that she did with Jay Z back in the day, Empire State of Mind. That's still sure. one sure. that that people uh, bring out there. We're still here in uh, Women's History Month. I wonder if there are. Uh, any women musicians from present or past that you sort of think of uh, when you think of big cities or or big city music? You're gonna laugh because I I'm, I'm going deep again. Okay. Okay. Do you know the name Debbie Harry? I uh, once I see her face, I remember. You know, every everyone knows Heart of Glass. I mean, sure. One of, she, one of the classics.
1: She fronts the band Blondie, mm-hmm. and uh, I can't even describe why she was an integral or why she was important to the music scene when she was out she was she was setting the trends she was uh, telling people what was cool mm-hmm. the The song that comes to me though is Rapture because she was uh, she was friends with some rap artists and in the late 70s she would go to rap events and would listen to people freestyle and I guess one night she actually got to do it
2: Tell me everybody's slide hey. DJ spinning. I said my my flash is fast, flash is cool, fronts. François-
0: So even in the visuals of the music video, it's very city. It's very different aesthetics, diverse, you know, exaggerations of things, graffiti everywhere. Mm -hmm. I definitely see what you mean about (laughs) city music.
1: Like a street legal leather jacket, uh, sunglasses at night, a pack of cigarettes, you're ready to go.
0: You have to admit that with exceptions, there's no 19-year-old, 20-year-old who wants to leave his parents' house To go to a village of 50 people to, you know, I think whether it's New York City or any other place that just has a lot happening, there is something about wanting to be in the mix Mm -hmm. of things. Mm -hmm. There's also something about growing up a little bit and not wanting to be in the mix. You mean where phase. I'm at now? I mean, I feel like I'm in one of those transition periods. I don't want to be right in the middle of things. I want to have access to the things though. Mm. <laughs> so be being on that periphery, but, you, but you're saying you're getting ready to go even further from the city center. Yeah. I'm thinking rural. So to speak. Yeah.
1: Um, just getting, just getting out. And whenever
0: something big happens, I'll read about it a day or two later. It's cool. It's fine. But you know, there's, there's certain sorts of things out there in the rural lands that see I can't visit you maybe or maybe not after dark but <laughs> Garrett. when you think so we you talk- don't think I would move someplace <laughs> like that do you? Our, oh, and okay, see here we go with with the sh- the so-called short episode we say we were gonna do. <laughs> what are the progressive, liberal, whatever word you want to do, uh, word you want to use, small towns mm-hmm. or or small areas? It seems like with rural America comes th- those dangers.
1: Sure. And there are some that are like little enclaves. Red Oak, Iowa. Prime example. Mm, okay. okay. so well, I'll,
0: I'll have to visit and check it out then. Uh, you can have some fun. <laughs> oh, so, oh, is it, so is that my warning? I can have some fun? <laughs> no. Not, not that kind
1: of warning. Mm-mm.
0: So we talked about big city music. What's your small town music? When you're finally getting down, sitting on the porch, having your lemonade or whatever, What sort of the musical aesthetic that That you think you might get into.
1: All right, I I don't know why this leapt to mind first, but in the mid to late seventies, on the radio that was playing in the kitchen at home and in the car and everything, it was that seventies country. You know, we talk about the Kenny Rogers flavor, right? Mm -hmm. You had a band and you know a whole orchestra behind you. That was the aesthetic, and for some reason. Delta Dawn by Helen Reddy jumps into my mind. Do you know Delta Dawn? I don't, know. Okay, Helen Reddy's Australian, but for some, somehow, she managed to just slot herself right into that uh, 70s country vibe. And Delta Dawn was, it, it seemed like it was on three times an hour.
2: She's 41 and her daddy still calls her baby.
0: Talk about the Kenny Rogers Award. (laughs) You like that one? That moves. But of course, that's that groove. That's that blues. That's that black music.
1: And the low end, uh, the men backing her up on Mm -hmm. the... Oh man, I love that. It's been recorded by... uh, Bette Midler did it first. Okay. Tanya Tucker a year later hell and ready after that but i just i just knew the hell and ready version i think i might have seen a variety show where she sang it
0: rule like america where the black music is allowed but the black people better stay in the big cities That's <laughs> <laughs> okay you know i kid I'm, yep. <laughs> when i think about rural life you know that i will grow into one of these days you know i I'm, i pull your leg talking about you know Black folks and people of color not being in those spaces. But as we see in the music itself, you know, this this music that we approximate to more rural aesthetics, plenty of black folks in that folk country, you know, just mm, Americana roots. realm roots. I, I would put uh, Valerie June in that category. She's oh, an artist current. who I've, uh, I've been following for a while and has been a door uh, into a different aesthetic for me. So, you know, it is time for me to sit on the porch and, you know. <laughs> if I'm sitting on the porch, that must mean some work was done mm. because I tend to have that weakness of being a workaholic. But when that finally happens, something about like this, I think will be playing for me. Something low, something smooth, but something truthful.
2: Follow the signs. Slowly be steady. Don't rush. That day will come. When you're ready, just trust. Dancing on the astral plane, holy water cleansing rain, floating through the stratosphere.
0: The music just sounds honest to me. So it just seems like it exists because it exists, not because I needed to write something to Fit the category of the next single of the rollout of my album, and you know all that sort of thing. Maybe there's an an aspect to that degree of of any of the music that we can commercially have access to. But for me, it's just that sort of aesthetic just reminds me of honesty.
1: I'm not I'm not familiar with that track. What's the title of yeah, that one? Astral Plane. Astral Plane. Yeah, really, okay, really great tune.
0: At the end of the day, though, you know we can talk about the big city music, the small city music, small town music. I think the sounds no matter how you slice it are uniquely ours this is what shapes our perspectives and our stories mm-hmm. it's what shapes contemporary america this is classical music you know a renewed look at classical music but a way that we affirm these these perspectives and uh, approaches you know all toward decolonizing the the very phrase that's how we explore it for between 90 minutes and 2 hours week to week well, let's see well, where we <laughs> end up <yeah>. this week <laughs> let's get started I'm Scott Blankenship, and this is Triloquy. Thanks so much for tuning in to Returning Listener's Thank you for your continued support and for helping uh, make this podcast something that is a vital part of the ecosystem. We couldn't do it without you. To return to new listeners, rather, if this is your first time checking out the Triloquy podcast, Triloquy is a show that takes the idea, the framework, the conception of classical music, and we expand it to include many more aesthetics, many more stories, many more dialogues, all toward the ultimate goal of decolonizing the phrase classical music. For more information on Triloquy, to check out past opuses, and to contribute Visit our website, t r i l l o q u y dot In addition to your support, support for Triloquy comes from Schubert Club, presenting on March 12th Randall Goosebee and Anna Hand. Violinist Randall Gooseby uh, will make his Schubert Club debut with a program featuring works by Lily Boulanger, Maurice Ravel, William Grant Still, and Ludwig fun beethoven you can check out uh, the performance and get your tickets at schubert.org be sure to go support and check that out also coming up with uh Salastina over on the west coast on march 24th and 25th they're going to have their resident artist showcase featuring meredith and yoshi uh, this is going to happen in person on march 24th at the eddie at the broad stage and uh in person at barrett hall and virtual uh, with a live stream on march 25th um, uh, that you can check out and learn more about at Uh In the uh, third movement today, I chat with Gabriela Laccio from the organization Donne, really uh, excited uh, to dialogue with her and to share my conversation with her. We have music by Jenny Brandon and Julia Perry mm-hmm. coming up in the second movement. We're going to talk a little bit about elevated experiences and respectability politics in the final oh, movement today, but for now, we'll jump into movement one. I'm going to get us started this week, Scott, with uh, uh, a post, an article from the New York Times. I'm going to, I'm going to give it a natural. It's one of those in betweens for me this yep. week. Uh, the headline is Carnegie Hall's new season. What we want to hear, we choose highlights from events featuring Mitsuko Uchida and Franz Wessler most as prospective artists, and the composer Tanya Leon. In residence. So basically, what uh, the the folks at the New York Times have done is taken the press release of what Carnegie Hall is presenting next season and picked some uh, highlights. But the highlights seem to be very, um, <laughs> very. How can I say? Very downtown New York. Very buttoned up. Very. Oh, I see. What NPR. You mean. Very. You know. Uh, you know. Reading the New York Times in the in the subway train. Just kind of. You know. Highbrow or or I don't know, maybe I shouldn't Fine. say highbrow, but just not everyday uh, knowledge and conversation that's kind of okay. uh, being put forward here. I, I get that opinion. I have that reaction just based on the the, the first paragraph of of this sort of a list of notable performances. It says the threats facing democracy will be a central focus of Carnegie Hall's coming season. The presenter announced on Tuesday with the festival devoted to the flourishing cultural scene in Germany between the two world wars. So I see the connection that they're making. About the upcoming elections, you know, what November is going to look like. I don't really even want to think about it. I don't watch the news as it is, but mm-hmm. <laughs> that's going to be a thing. And then uh, connecting that reality to um, uh, the Weimar or, or the history of Weimar in Germany, where, um, you know, art kind of began became very adventurous and uh, very... Uh, how can I say, integrated. A lot of black aesthetics were explored through German classical music uh, at, at that time. When you think about Kurt Weill's Three Penny Opera, for mm-hmm. example, you mm-hmm. know that, that sort of stuff was born in that period. I can sort of think about that and wrap my head around it. I think a lot of that is due to my being familiar with Kurt Vile and Paul Hindemith and, and that sort of thing, because I wasn't familiar with uh, the fall of the uh, Weimar Republic or or anything like that. Do you, from your perspective, is this no, common knowledge or, this, or something else?
1: This is one of those things that you go, yeah, I've heard about that. And then you got to go back to your seventh grade history book to find out what it was yep. to get all the broad strokes of it. My question to you is, Does listening to music from this era make you more concerned
0: about the fraught nature of our times today? Is that connection made? Yeah, the programmatic connection I think is fine. I definitely get it. I think it's a way to refer to um, two things, and one of them is real, or one of them is present, but we're still taking ourselves out of it and viewing it from that third-person perspective. So we can go back and look at Excuse me. We can go back and look at the history of of, of Weimar and and you know how music and politics enter intertwine there. Mm-hmm. But I think you know if we want to connect that to today or what's coming up in the fall, when we're talking about elections and that sort of thing, it just requires uh, the sort of urgency or or perspective that paints that picture with us in it not mm. just taking two ideas that exist outside of ourselves and and putting them side by side again that two but two not two i see this as actually two separate things because one of them we can react to or we can have some sort of impact on it's not a historical sort of you know again thing that we can look at from the third person perspective what's happening this fall is is real, but again, I just think this is an example of how the arts is is still fighting that sort of a uh, very educated, high level approach to things that really don't have to be approached that way. I think there are uh, more front facing, just to the ground ways to address threats of democracy or however the uh, upcoming elections want to be uh, uh, contextualized in a way that you know doesn't take a, a quick look at a wikipedia page or, or or a refresher on your on your history right. lesson. That's
1: my question is you know both of us have plenty of experience in uh orchestral music classical music would this attract you would you go to hear music that will uh draw parallels between now and the era between 1919 and 1930s I mean Was,
0: Look, the, the the answer is just no. And as as a, and as much as I want to be a, a cheerleader for innovation and and really thoughtful uh, ways to engage audiences and that sort of thing, I, I don't know. This, this doesn't the, 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 the way that is contextualized anyway. The container doesn't really attract me. But there are concerts that this article does highlight that you know even even you said sounded kind of interesting. right. There's
1: a there's a few of them in here. Um, I had to scroll down for American Composers Orchestra. That's coming up on November 9th. They're they're going to do a piece by George Lewis. No title for the piece yet. And the same goes for other new works on the bill, including the likes of Guillermo Klein and Augusta Reed Thomas. We do have one title, Out of Whose Womb, Came the Ice by up-and-coming composer Nina C. Young.
0: I think this announcement is a, a, a very good way, and not just because I work for ACO, but just a good way to grab audiences who are familiar with the scene, know what's happening in new music, and to include the titles and the language that might catch the attention of someone who isn't. So George Lewis is a huge name mm-hmm. in new music. It wasn't until I was really doing work with American Composers Forum and and just living in the living composer's world that I understood the impact George Lewis has has had. But he's mm. he's one of the kings. So anyone you know uh, who is who is interested in just the genre of new music generally, I feel like the inclusion of the name George Lewis is something that will grab attention. But even if you are aren't, the inclusion of uh, the title of this piece, "Out of Whose Womb Came the Ice." That's also something that sounds provocative. It's very different than the announcement of you know a a baroque concert or something by Handel. Something to 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 catch just the general contemporary eye as well.
1: Sure. The next one they highlight is Stash Berlin coming through with a Mozart and Bruckner program. Daniel Barenboim conducting. He's good. Mm-hmm. Uh, English concert. I'm. I don't. There's nothing there for me on that concert. We go down to. March 9th, Jason Moran. It's a Carnegie survey of Black American music from the Great Migration. Uh, Moran's latest album, From the Dance Hall to the Battlefield. Uh, we'll have some arrangements on that program, but prepare also for some surprises. This restless innovator really does anything the same way twice. Hmm. I'm interested in that. Yeah, I'm interested.
0: Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure. You know what the connections are between that and Weimar again. I'm sure they're there, I'm, but it's just again that unfamiliarity with that very specific or from my perspective that very specific bit of history. It's not overt. Yeah. Um the
1: last one, the I, I would go and hear the Danish string quartet. They're bringing in Anna Thorvald's daughter. Um the Schubert string quintet is a good one and also a commission by Thomas Addis. So that looks cool. Obviously it would be it would be a kick to hear
0: Mitsuko Uchida play. Sure. But I I know what that program sounds like. Yeah. If there's anything that you think could be added, or if you had the, uh, again, there's more concerts happening that are listed here in these highlights. But if there is a a highlight that you could add to maybe pull in someone like, you know, some of your family or just some of your neighbors, you know, I I think about my brother who lives in New York, what's going to get him to Carnegie Hall? I don't know. I think there has to be something included that's a little less buttoned up, a little less attached to academia and, and being learned and something that's just Closer to the ground, you know, my, my way of thinking about it anyway.
1: That's what I'm saying. That's That was my question uh, about the whole Weimar thing because it, this seems like it's for a particular audience member. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you want to speak to the issues of today, uh, get some Joel Thompson in there. Sure. Bring in Carlos Simon um composers like that who are writing on the issues of today because it's closer to us i think it's a little bit more it's a little easier to identify with because you know the first the in between the first and second world wars the 100 years yeah uh, ago so how many people around are going to be able to identify
0: yeah I, I i would i would agree and even beyond the uh Joel Thompson's and the Carlos Simons you know the folks you're talking about Think about, once again, we talked about on this podcast, Solange wrote for the New York City Ballet and that pulled all sorts of folks in there. How can venues like Carnegie Hall sort of utilize that sort of power, mm-hmm. you know, find a find an artist that's very familiar, a pop star, whatever, create a program where they write a new piece of music. And now, you know, my my family in New York, you know, but depending on who the uh, uh, artist is. Your family, people you know in your life, just a different sort of crowd than the one that is being marketed to here. Mm-hmm. Find something that you know they'll they'll rush and buy a ticket to. I think that's going to have to be a part of the next phase of of making these spaces uh, and even making the announcements of what's going on in these spaces look a little different.
1: No shade to the program that they've put together. There's top flight talent. Um, it, it it's it's nothing forward forward leaning. <laughs> mm-hmm. By and large, at least from what they've shown here, yeah. So,
0: but you know, with with all of the things that we can uh, critique from this, there are a couple of interesting things. Tanya Leon, you know, is mentioned among the highlights. So we're going to uh, transition out of this first accidental with a little of her music. pianist Unbi Kim is going to play a bit of a work by Tanya Leon called "Tumbao." Let's take a listen. You know, again, just to be clear, one of the reasons I think it's important to have these types of conversations and look at these announcements and and season highlights as presented by certain institutions and and publications, it's getting harder and harder for, you know, those of us who have connections to the field to really take up for, well, Mm, give mm -hmm. it a chance or this, you know, if, if we genuinely aren't, you know, being engaged or excited or rushing over to the website to buy a ticket right now, you know who who knew is who who uh who doesn't have a connection to the field is is doing that it's hard for me to to see that to see people doing
1: that. Was is there a program listed here that you would go to?
0: I mean, I, I will of course be at the ACO performance and I think the uh the, the Jason more the Jason Moran Jason performance Moran. Okay. sounds interesting, you know. I mean, even, you know, there there's some uh uh baroque stuff that's listed there. Under the right circumstances, you may even see me there, but that doesn't mean that I'm rushing to stand first in line to get a ticket to make sure I'm there. It's as always, you know, sort of a thing like, well, if I'm around and, you know, if if <laughs> if if if, if. I'll, I'll be there. You know, I could make a case for any of those highlights. But again, my, my point is, how are we platforming things and, and thinking about programming and selecting highlights that's going to expand the audience? Maybe that's not their job. Maybe Maybe they don't, you know, really... Uh, create these things with that in mind, but that's just where my mind always is. Getting new people in the space. You've
1: heard it here, folks. Garrett Garrett likes Frescobaldi.
0: <laughs> mm. I said, you know, there's a circumstance for everything. But mm. anyway, <laughs> uh, we got your accidentals. What what accidental you want to throw out?
1: I'm going all naturel with mm, this one okay. too. Um, first, uh, I'm I'm going to try to tie these two articles together here. Mm-hmm. The first one is the current is current.org where i'm finding the story current is the uh public radio industry um uh publication michigan's wcmu replaces classical music with news on weekdays wcmu in mount pleasant michigan switched to an all-news format uh while moving classical music to hd channels and the digital stream um so it used to be nine to noon and one to four. They played classical, and now there's just going to be uh, the the side piece, mm-hmm. the uh, the HD stream, and the streaming.
0: That mu- that uh, must be like a, a national sort of scheme for uh, dual format stations. Because at my first station, you know, nine to noon and and one to four was the classical music during the day. De- you know, before the the overnight and all that stuff was. That was. Mm. Where classical music lived as well.
1: Yeah, typically a, a, a national public radio affiliate will have the tent poles. You know, they'll they'll have morning edition, all things considered in the right. afternoon. And in the middle, it's the patchwork. And frequently, classical music is in there for stations when they break away from that. Yeah. But um, what I wanted to uh, hold this up against was a story that came out right around the same time MacRumors.com, the Apple Music Classical app. That Apple first announced when it acquired classical music service Prime Phonic could potentially be launching maybe sometime in the near future, perhaps, Mm -hmm. (laughs) according to uh, mentions in Apple Music Classical found on iOS 16.4 beta. Do you have that update? (laughs) <laughs> I'll have to check <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure but. okay so evidently this is some sort of a sleeper app that they're counting on you you had some insight into prime phonic though what yeah back talk about so, prime phonic. B-
0: back when I was uh at NPR I remember you know overnight you know on Twitter seeing advertisements and tweets for this classical streaming service so being the person i was at least you know i always felt like i needed to stick my neck out and and you know quote tweet the advertisements and say things like well prime phonic doesn't have someone who's actually live in the booth and engaged in the audience and, and that sort of thing but basically it sounded like prime phonic was just an app a service that if somebody wanted to just stream some classical that was that was an option but apple music sort of you know engulfed that and they're coming up with their with their own thing
1: so why has it been pushed off so often do you think what do so, you mean well because it's they said that they they uh, acquired it in 2020 in oh, 2020 yeah. and they said okay next year and then okay next year and now they're hinting at it maybe being already on your phone waiting to jump out at you
0: it may be intentionality you know they they uh Apple an organization like Apple definitely has the capability to just platform playlists and to, you know, press go. But it sounds like, you know, with taking their time, maybe they're trying to make sure they do it right or help shift uh, a narrative or, you know, who knows.
1: If in fact they are trying to reach out to a younger audience, to a wider with a D audience, mm-hmm. might this not be the way to go? Seeing as how younger folks Get their media through a, a device of some kind.
0: Right, streaming is just what right is. There's very little buying of MP3s for right. sure. Um, I I say it makes sense from the from that perspective. Why why wouldn't you try to? Why wouldn't an organization trying to uh, reach every little corner that they can not offer the quick streaming option to people who are interested or at least curious about classical but but my thing is I I guess the reason I'm always I'm hesitating in my speech is because it seems like a person who wants to listen to so-called classical music might have an idea of where to go where to go or what they want to like what specific sort of aesthetic Mm -hmm. it really feels like this is a a beginner's guide, and not that that's a bad thing, but just the person who's curious, the person who just wants classical music on, in a way, the responsibility is probably bigger Mm -hmm. to make sure that what is on that service is music that can reach that wider audience.
1: So basically, I I guess I wanted to say, number one, maybe it's not such a harbinger of doom or bad news or whatever that classical music gets moved to a different way to get it. Mm Mm-hmm. If that makes sense in that market, right? That's the that's the key, and we always talk about the mess is in the comments. The right. real story is in the comments. So somebody under the name Reality Check commented on the Mac Rumors story. Uh, the same reason that they haven't gone forward with this uh, Apple Music classical is the same they haven't done one for a country music app or a reggae app or a Beyonce music app or Kanye West. There is zero reason for each music category to have its own app. Hmm. Do you agree?
0: I don't think I get the point of the of, of what the person is saying. It's overkill to have an app for well, if everything. You,
1: if you can get classical music through just Apple Music, mm-hmm. why do you need that dedicated app? that's only going to bring you classical.
0: Oh, I see. Well, how else will classical music people feel better or more elevated than the rest of them unless they have their own app? Shots fired. (laughs) Maybe maybe it's that, I don't know. I mean, I'm just throwing throwing knives out. (laughs) Someone
1: someone brought up, uh, someone countered with that, that the logarithms, the algorithms would be different in that it would keep you maybe moving on the same symphony Mm. With the same orchestra, <laughs> you know playing the same recording sure. rather than jumping to some other piece or from, say, a chamber piece to um, choral or something like that.
0: I mean, for me, all of what 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 the conversation just brings me to is what does this mean for classical radio? If we're moving even classical listening deeper and deeper into streaming? That has to, from your perspective, have some sort of impact on the more <laughs> traditional way to just pop into some classical music, which is radio.
1: Right, just flipping through the dials, sure. Um, I, think, I I don't think you're going to see a day anytime soon where they're taking uh, the radio, the, the, the FM, AM FM receiver out of a car, mm-hmm. even the brand new ones. You're, um, the, if, no, if nothing else for the emergency alert system, Sure, you have to have a way to talk to everybody
0: all at once. I'll agree. Maybe they're not taking the FM AM dial out of a car anytime soon. But I can't remember the last time just terrestrial radio was playing in my car. Maybe I'm a a unique case. But it seems like you know this isn't only opportunistic. Maybe this is a a response to something. A response to the fact that listenership over radios in general is different when we're talking about younger audiences. More yeah. you know whatever or audiences i don't know i i I think i wouldn't necessarily call this a a harbinger of bad news for radio but if i were a program director at a classical music radio station this would be news that i would personally be following very closely just to see what's what's gonna what's gonna happen
1: sure um and obviously it's positive that it is still accessible even though you have to go and, and search for it a little bit more and it seems like these uh you know your spotify's and such what 10 bucks a month and you mm-hmm. can stream unlimited however many you want and fast forward through and all that um maybe they're looking at it and going we got to get on this we got to get on this uh this gravy train
0: the other part of the conversation for me is who is in the room who is in the space when a a target sound for example is being identified what's the typical aesthetic that a person is going to get if they just jump into the app what is not being included sure. and why you know we can talk about what goes in i'm more interested in what disqualifies something for a classical music app or classical music streaming and what is the conversation that determines that i think it's small details like that that may have gone into you know this taken 3 years since uh, Prime Phonic, uh, was was bought or, or taken over or whatever by by apple i suppose we'll see
1: Well, maybe they bought it then thinking it's easier to swallow it up now before it actually gets some traction and Mm -hmm. try to get it later. Yeah, that's that's true. That's That's
0: another point. Yeah, foresight. When I go into my phone and just look at what I can grab onto or just listen to right now when it comes to classical music streaming, it says uh, shifting expectations of not just what defines classical music, but who. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like even if the approach is going to be more western european centric or or of that aesthetic or whatever the opportunity that they see is to bring at least the performances alive highlight Mm -hmm. the performer do you think there's use in that is it important in the way that you present classical music over the radio now to tell stories about not just who's the music by but who's playing it who you're listening to give the performance
1: oh half the time i'm relying on i i'm i'm telling stories about the performers mm-hmm. absolutely and it seems to me like this might be a way for the people who aren't Mitsuko Uchida or Daniel Barenboim sure. or something like that if it's a, if it's a good recording then i think that would trump a name and probably get somebody else's name out there
0: yeah well among the good recordings that apple music is pushing to the front at least through the uh apple music app as as, as it exists now i'll have to check if i can find or get an update for this classical app but I I logged into it and the first thing up on the list was a a work by Dabrinka Topakova a composer you know whose name we say semi-regularly here it's a tune called Simple Prayer for Complex Time and it's performed by you know again not just the composer but who's uh, playing it is performed by uh Laura Downs here who has Mm. been very active in radio in her own regard and continuing her uh, recording uh, and performance career. So we'll listen to a little bit of it since Apple Music is suggesting it. Why not give it a, give it a try? Debrika Topakova's Simple Prayer for Complex Times, brought to you by the one and only Laura Downs. I think that's a good title for the piece, Simple Prayer for Complex Times, because it takes a relatively simple rhythm and scheme. You know, you have the Alberti bass, the booty, you know, Mm -hmm. with the with the other part. But then it's not like I can just write down all of the chords instantly there. There is like some complexity about it mixed in with that simplicity. Really cool piece of music. Another example of why. The music world loves to break a Tabakova. Maybe they should
1: get that on Carnegie Halls
0: program. Yeah, something like that. (laughs) But we're here in the second movement where Scott and I are going to talk a little bit about some music that we've been spending our time with. I'm actually going to get us started in the second movement because that Dabrinka Tabakova has a similar aesthetic to what I'm bringing in. So um, my friend Clara, who lives over uh, on the other side of the river in Minneapolis, we've been doing some collaborations lately. We did a a pre-concert performance and dialogue for the Minnesota Orchestra, and we're planning currently for when all the snow melts and things get warmer, a sort of uh salon concert here in um here in uh Mindell's home. Now that we have this baby grand piano in there, we better do something with it, you know. So, yeah, you, don't, so you don't want a
1: bunch of wet shoes. So
0: so Clara and I <laughs> have been um Uh, exploring music and we've identified a piece of music uh, by a composer named Jenny Brandon that we think is going to be really good for these intimate in-home performances. It's called double helix music for a bassoon and piano inspired by uh, a sculpture titled Double Helix and the way that in that Dabrinka Topakova music we were hearing the very light piano and and that very bright aesthetic at least the way that it happens in my mind this piece has a very similar sound and uh, it's been really fun for me not only to engage it as a listener but to engage it as a performer really you know dialoguing with the music itself and getting that deeper perspective on the composition as it exists so Mm. here's a little bit of it uh, as performed by Kristen Schillinger uh, Double Helix for Bassoon and Piano by Jenny Brandon So, maybe you can hear what I mean about the similarities between those aesthetics. Sure. I also really appreciate, as a bassoonist, as much as I love digging down into the more growly aspects of the instrument, and that does exist uh, in other movements of this piece, but I think it's always beneficial from my perspective for audiences to get to hear the bassoon. Sing to get to the uh, get to hear the bassoon in that more light those those uh light blue colors those mm. cloud those sky colored aesthetics. I think it's really cool, and I can't wait to perform it once you know once the the, the weather breaks here. Once we figure out when the salon is, mm-hmm. yeah, I'll be sure to let y'all know. Uh, but what you got uh, this week? What, what sort of music you've been spending your time with?
1: Well, uh, composers like uh, Florence Price, Margaret Bonds. Um, they're, they're starting to become just part of the fabric, mm-hmm. at least if you're paying, if you listen a lot and you're paying a lot of attention, uh, or, uh, you're talking about it a lot like we do. So I want to bring in the name Julia Perry, who, uh, she was born in Lexington, Kentucky, but grew up in Akron, Ohio. Mm-hmm. And, uh, she actually had a, a composition uh, that she wrote, uh, in her late teens, early twenties that, that, Propelled her all around Europe, Stabat Mater was one of them, and her small piece for orchestra was the other. And unlike Florence Price, you don't you don't hear a juba dance mixed into her symphonies. Sure, you once described this sort of music as angular. Mm-hmm. It feels very Prokofiev, maybe Shostakovich, Coplandish. That that sort of aesthetic. Sure. But when you listen to it again, there's so many different peaks and valleys that she finds along the way in this piece that um, I just found myself drawn in and, and I, sometimes I would tumble along with the music. Sometimes I felt myself sort of maybe humming along, but there's just so many uh, different layers packed into this short piece for orchestra. <laughs>
0: Yeah, the Imperial Philharmonic of, of Tokyo there. Yeah, that, that's my bag. If I'm going to spend the time and the money to go to a concert hall and hear an orchestral piece of music, that is really the aesthetic that gets me there. I know I have a very particular sort of taste, but again, mm-hmm. the angular nature of that music just reminds me of of the type of visual art that I would be most attracted to or the type Mm. of sculpture or even fashion that I would uh, find really intriguing, really, really interesting. Uh, What what that also makes me think about is, as you were kind of saying, the idea that music by Black composers, even music by Black women composers in itself is very diverse. It's not all drawing on the Juba dance. It's not all drawing on a soul or blues or gospel and those things. This is music that is very much by a black woman and very much different than a lot of the things that we typically associate with black women composers, at least from my perspective.
1: Now, you know, the story of Florence Price, uh, the, a, a lot of her music was found in an abandoned home that was mm-hmm. about to be demolished. Right? Right. So we nearly lost all of that. Um, Julia Perry's music is in that realm. Mm. So she was not associated with an organization, uh, unmarried as I understand it. So when she had a stroke, um, It it almost took her down. So she she taught her she learned how to uh, write again with her left hand. She kept right on composing, but uh, that's when it it seemed like if she wasn't able to be out there marketing herself, that's where the interest sort of tapered off. And so a lot of Julia's music only exists in
0: manuscript. Wow. So her
1: catalog is being put together now. Um, This is just a a terrific find in my mind. A great neoclassical. Uh, sound that um, I think you're going to find a lot of surprises in in her music. Stabat Mater's great mm-hmm. if you like the vocal music, but um, definitely check out the short piece for orchestra. That's going to be one of the ones that'll be easiest for you to find.
0: Yeah, and and her catalog is uh, much larger than I think we still yet know. Yes, uh, a few uh, weeks back, maybe a couple months back, uh, Curtis Stewart was on Triloquy because he had a. Uh, uh, a performance of her violin concerto coming up, you know, really sharing that and exposing that mm-hmm. to the world. So I think as, as time goes on, we're going to find more and more and more. The first time I was really understanding and listening to the music of Julia Perry, it was at my first radio station, uh, mostly uh, chamber music that I was finding, mm-hmm. really in that angular mode. And I have to say, I there were no pictures included in any of the CD sleeves or anything, so I didn't, you know, realize it was a black woman who. Music that I was listening to until years later. Yeah. So you know, as as much as we uh, really love the the Margaret Bondses and uh, the Florence Price, we're actually going to hear some of uh, her here in a, a couple minutes. It's also important to shine a light on the black women composers whose music didn't you know sound like soft meadows and and green grass and you know <laughs> right. it, it's more of that big city music that we were talking about, just the orchestral yeah, version. I think you're right. Yeah.
1: yeah, check out Julia Perry. You will
0: not be sorry. Well, uh, we're transitioning here into our third movement. And this week, I have the pleasure of sharing with you my conversation with Gabriela Di Laccio. Gabriela uh, is a Brazilian soprano who has uh, had an incredible performance career, uh, but she's also the founder of uh, the project Donne, Women in Music. So, uh, again... Several weeks back, we shared uh, the, the results of Donne. They uh, profiled the programming of orchestras across the United States and Europe. I think there were 111 orchestras involved. And after tallying all the numbers, less than 8% of the music performed by these orchestras was by women. It's mm. really staggering numbers. So Donne works to not only uh, expose these numbers to the the world to encourage people to shift toward more equitable programming, but um, also doing what they can to shine a light on the, the projects, on the orchestras that are doing the work of shining a light. So we talk about uh, programming women. We talk about the status quo of programming and uh, really have a great dialogue that I think is uh, important for Women's History Month and really All year round. Uh, One of the albums that uh, we discuss during the conversation is Project W featuring uh, Maestro Man Chin and the Chicago Sinfonietta. We've performed and performed. We've aired, (laughs) played a lot of music from this album, you know, from the uh, the coincident dances of of Jesse Montgomery, Shadu Keshi Bondish. Uh, by rena Smail, if you rem- uh, remember that yes. one you know uh, even just a couple weeks ago we were talking about the piece uh hashtag me too, too. you know so a really great resource a really great uh, collection of recordings that features uh, music by women uh but from that album this week to get us into my conversation with gabriella Di laccio we're going to go back to the classics this is william grant stills arrangement of a piano piece by Florence Price called Dances in the Cane Breaks, the tail end here of that middle movement titled Tropical Noon to get us into my conversation with Gabriela Delaccio.
3: I don't want to sound rude to people sometimes, but uh, it feels like I'm very tired of conversations of being repeatedly saying the same things. Because uh, I don't understand why why are we still talking about? It's not time to be talking about anymore. It's time to be doing it, and and uh, and I think that's my uh, my feeling, and I'm sure many people feel the same way including yourself of course Uh, and it it just you just ask yourself when when are gonna when are people gonna get it (laughs) what is how how better do we need to explain things so uh, it's clear and then we provide numbers we provide data we we can go on several concert halls and and look at the programs and and it the problem is clearly in front of our eyes and then we're still not making the changes that need to be
0: yeah made. as so- as front uh, in front of our eyes as the issue is we can also, you know, uh, proverbially uh, miss the trees for the sake of the forest. I remember the first time I actually thought about a black composer. I was in the profession, you know, and it just really surprised me that I had never thought about it. I wonder if you can remember the first time you performed or studied a woman composer. Did you have a similar sort of awakening in that way?
3: Uh, I think the first first time uh, I performed uh, anything by a woman was Barbara Strozzi. I was still in Brazil, but because I was uh, I studied, you know, I'm an early music specialist as well. So, of course, we do research a lot of things. But even then, I remember when I was doing it, I just accepted that oh, there was this one. <laughs> composer that existed and I didn't really think much about it I just kind of oh pretty music and then um, apart from that I knew that Clara Schumann existed and Fanny Mendelssohn but they always sort of the, has the wives and the sisters of somebody they didn't come mm-hmm. as individuals so we knew they existed but that was absolutely not Nobody in my music degree who kind of made a point of of showing me them. And then I moved here, got a scholarship. I went to the Royal College of Music. And once again, I, I all my years at college, I don't remember anybody performing or talking or or suggesting. Uh, and we had great musicians, great women who studied there, including Elizabeth McConkey, who was a pupil of Vaughan Williams. And apparently Vaughan Williams wrote a letter saying, I have nothing else to teach you. I know she her music was played at the proms in her early 20s. And you, you walk in, I walked into the Royal College of Music, nobody ever mentioned her name. So I am very ashamed to tell you that uh, the first time I actually sung uh, pieces by women and with a, you know, a desire to do more is what six years ago, which is shocking. <laughs>
0: What do you um, think is, is behind that lack of diversity? I mean, maybe 50 years ago the argument could be we just didn't know who these women were. I don't think that excuse can be used today, especially with the internet and all of the databases people are putting together. From your perspective, is it a continued lack of awareness? Do people just not care? How do you receive it? Uh,
3: I think there's several. As you said, several reasons. Uh, we have some historical reasons that for you know in the past women didn't receive uh, as much as education as men like if we think centuries ago but still many of them uh, did and many of them left their mark and sadly history was written by men and somehow their music or their art and literature and etc 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 were simply taken out of the books and then that was you know just created this unconscious bias that we all believe somehow that, oh, only men were genius and then women didn't really produce any. And this, of course, this just helps to create more doubt in any young woman who who or wanted to pursue this career and couldn't see themselves doing or, or appearing So maybe... We never know how many people didn't pursue. But this is, as you said, is in the past, right? It's the 21st century. And then I think after that, we had the, oh, but the music is not very good uh, type of nonsense. Um, and then again, very easy to to confront this argument by if you just spend a very little time Uh, researching or listening or just go to endless YouTube videos or playlists, Uh, we have playlists and then uh, that's it, the argument is is fault and I think for me now the worst of the worst uh, reason or the main reason that I feel like uh, we are still here is ignorance and the people in charge who believe they know it all and they're not being humble enough to accept that they have a lot to learn. Because uh, we have a whole chapter of history that has not been written. And we have to catch up a lot if we want to to learn more. Uh, and because of that of sometimes those people they don't have prejudice per se, but uh their position they they never been exposed to, so they they don't know. <laughs> Yeah. They're just uh, I say, ignorant of knowledge of knowing that this contribution existed. And then, because of that, and and also as there is lack of time, it's easier just to pr- pr- put in the program something that people already know. And then we just keep perpetuating the same story. Um, and I wrote to a festival as a festival proposal that uh, wanted to hire me, and i I sent them a proposal with Only Music by Women. And the response I got was, "Oh no, this will never work. Our audiences only like uh, melodic, pleasant, good music." <laughs> <laughs> and then you go, know, of course, this is a a, a very bad stereotype, uh, but they still are out there uh, believing that. Music from the past they didn't exist. So women composing now—they're only crazy, writing a melodic type of music—and and, and it's absurd, right?
0: But we, but we never, uh, you know, question. I don't know, Alban Berg and and some of these other composers who wrote exactly that. You know,
2: <laughs>
0: uh, of,
3: but they were genius, of course. Can't question them.
0: I think you make a really incredible point when you talk about the cultivation of unconscious bias you know through what is represented and what isn't represented on uh, orchestral stages, performance stages. I think the value for artists, especially women composers who need to see themselves represented, you know that that value is is great. But I wonder how you uh, sort of contextualize the value of more representation for audiences. For example, this festival that you were uh, speaking, to how would you make a case that this is also something of value to the audiences, even if they don't know this music?
3: Well, I, I try. I mean, I never, there's never been a concert where I and I sing um, many different genres, right? Because I sing from baroque to contemporary music, and in the, in the past year, I think I premiered, I don't know, fifteen new works by women, uh, and there's not a single concert when I do this music that people leave oh my god that was horrible on the contrary <laughs> the audience always comes uh to talk to me and say oh i didn't know this composer oh it's so nice to to, to know that she lives here in manchester or or how amazing that uh, you know that was this woman in the baroque period who was doing this never heard of her so uh, they there is always a sense of um curiosity and and desire to learn more and i think that's my job and i think that's our job as art because you can't simply put these women in the program and say nothing when you're performing. You need to invite the audience in, you need to tell their story, and, and I think that's the job of every single organization in the world because they can say, oh, nobody's going to come. Well, nobody's going to come uh, if they're coming to hear Beethoven, if you put a woman there or 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 a composer that is not obviously one of the, the ones everybody knows, and and contextualize and then just present it and, and tell a story, uh, we are not giving these people the chance to be heard. And we heard Beethoven and Mozart all our lives. We have familiarity with the music. So how can we give a chance to other composers if we are not giving familiarity? And that goes for everybody. That goes for radio stations. That goes for all the record labels who are constantly recording the same thing over and over again.
2: Because mm-hmm. if
3: if this music is not recorded, it doesn't go to Spotify. It doesn't. It doesn't get the chance to 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 be heard. It's as simple as that. And then if people hear it on the recording, maybe they will go to a concert. So it's a vicious cycle of. Um, uh, people just need to start doing it. But if you don't have the desire to change, that's what I feel like. If you're, if you if it's not, in, if your passion is not in it, you don't do it. You just, you just keep repeating what's easy, and that's very sad because our world, more than ever, is so divided already, and but mm-hmm. is equally diverse. And so rich in uh, different voices that could complement, and audiences it's themselves when they go to, I go to concerts now. It's almost like a curse because I can't note I can't stop looking around and just seeing, is everybody exactly like me? And mm-hmm. that's really sad. It's really sad because we are somehow we are saying that only white people have talent, only Western people have talent. What is it that we're subconsciously saying by only programming or only seeing these people on stage or sometimes we just do it oh it's a special day, it's it's March let's do lots of women and then that's it
0: (laughs) (laughs) you know and it's one of the complicated things about the conversation for me is that it's easy for people to get emotional when you start using words or phrases like white men or or Western people. People really get into their feelings, but I think it's important to note that with data, you know, there is nothing to argue. This is exactly what's happening. And, and Donne has done an incredible job of cultivating a bit of that data. I wonder if you could uh, talk about uh, Donay, its origins, and a little bit about the organization's uh, history and trajectory. Yeah, well, uh,
3: first of all, I say it's called Donne because it means women in Italian and i am brazilian italian and and to be honest i wanted to call something else here but i was discouraged i wanted to call ladies first when i first started this and then uh, a person said to me oh this is absurd blah, blah, blah. anyway it's called donne and i'm very happy it's called donne um so i almost started by chance i tell you because i was um 2015 i was singing a lot of music with texts by shakespeare because it was uh, a universal shakespeare's Death, birth, one of them. And then uh, I ended up, I had a bit more freedom in, in trying to find some song cycles and and I ended up finding three or four very easily by women, Amy Beach and uh, mm-hmm. Rebecca Clark here in the UK or Madeleine Dring as well. And then I, I remember I never heard of their names, right? I am quite a geeky music student. <laughs> Uh, I never heard of them and I remember I sung their music and somehow I was kind of oh that's interesting uh, and then somehow I started to look for more music and finding more things and and it became kind of a a joke in my house because my husband couldn't hear another story of a woman
2: composer <laughs> <laughs>
3: and I was always oh listen to this I'm like, oh my God and then uh, one day I was in South I don't know if you know London but the South Bank has a, a beautiful a bridge and then on Sundays there is a market like a secondhand books and they have uh, stands outside and and it's always a lovely day and then I found this encyclopedia called the International encyclopedia of women composers then uh, in the 80s by Aaron Cohen you might know it's two big volumes <laughs>
2: Mm-hmm. oh and
3: le- <laughs> um, he listed six thousand women uh in this encyclopedia uh, amazing work and I remember looking at that like whoa uh so I, I took the books home and and the first thing i saw i i thought and that's very revealing it was like oh this is just a big list this is just a long list of names doesn't mean their music is good so um uh, that Thought really shocked me, and then I immediately thought, "No, hold on a minute, let's research a bit more." And I started looking into more names and more stories. And of course, then I went into a a very annoying phase when I would not talk about anything else. But I felt really ignorant. I thought I missed, uh, I had missed a very important lesson at the Royal College of Music when they told us about women in music. Uh, And suddenly, I started uh, talking to colleagues. In concerts, you know, rehearsals, maestros, ex professors, and I said, well, did you know about this women composer?" Blah blah blah. No, no. And then I realized, oh my god, it's not only me. Uh, there is a Everybody's ignorant. ignorant. Um, and then one day at breakfast, my husband said to me, "Look, I'm, I'm so, I'm, <laughs> I'm tired of hearing you telling me stories. I mean, but you need to do something. So, are you going to keep telling me stories, or are you going to do something about it?" So. I never thought, you know, um, it was going to become what it became. But in uh, International Women's Day 2018, I I designed a little website uh, on Adobe, you know, Dreamweaver with my knowledge, and I listed 4,000 women, the one I could find online. And then I decided to meet living composers. I met Rachel Portman, who's mm-hmm. the first woman who won an Oscar, who you know lives in London and very grace- gracefully received me and because I was like you, I wanted to know why what was going on. Um pressed enter. Um but then because of my curiosity, I wanted to look into the top 15 orchestras in the world. Mm-hmm. Gramophone listed them in a page in a research, I don't know, a few years before that. Cause then I realized again that I've been going to concerts all my life, and I never questioned a single program. I simply accepted. Oh wow, Tchaikovsky, oh Mozart, Brahms, Wagner, and mm-hmm. I, I just got these men as amazing figures. And and I think that's one part of the story that may uh, not many people know. But you know, I grew up in the south of Brazil. I don't have any classical musicians in my family. Uh, you know, financially things were very difficult for us. My dreams were really crazy of having a career as a classical singer uh, internationally uh, and everything. But my mom's a big dreamer. She has always been a big dreamer. uh, And she never gave me any sort of limitations in what I could dream, which is the best gift you can have. She's slightly delusional sometimes, but hey, thank God. But she told me (laughs) stories of men. She told me stories of men. Oh, no, don't worry. Beethoven was deaf. Look what he achieved. Oh, Einstein was dyslexic. So I grew up hanging myself into the stories of this man who achieved stuff. And that really, really helped me because it made me believe that even if it's difficult, you can get there. And at that point, I just got super angry that I was deprived of the stories of women who had done the same. And this is still for me more important than the music sometimes, because it's really what touches me to to want to tell these stories, because it's not about music. This is about overcoming uh, difficulties or overcoming barriers that people put in front of you and proving that lots of people did. And then somehow they delete them from our history books, and then we, we don't have that to inspire us. So when I looked into these 15 orchestras and this research I'd done myself by, by <laughs> a lot of uh, patients, um, the results were really bad. It was only 2.3% of the music played by these orchestras were by women. And I remember putting on the website. And then The Guardian, the newspaper here, picked it up and published uh, as a story. And then, of course, this was two months after the launch of the website. And then suddenly the world knew about this tiny website, the big list of women composers, Donne. What? what is it called? Done. Um, and then women start writing to me from all over the world. Composers saying, oh, my God, thank you so much. Can you add me to your list? Can you just... I am a one woman giving you a one woman standing ovation from Australia, from Ecuador. Mm. for and, and then, of course, and then I was... Really, really shocked, and then he showed me also that numbers. I love numbers. Numbers are the way forward because we live on a society that has feelings that things are better, and and we can't rely on feelings anymore. You know, right. here today, uh, I just saw this notice that the Brit, the Brit Award, decided to create the uh, gender neutral awards to stop doing female and male nominations. And then, not surprisingly, only 10 male, ten men were nominated for the award. I was like, oh, what's going on? So Doné happened almost by chance. Um, and then the pandemic came. And when all my concerts were cancelled, I saw an opportunity to develop, to have a, a bigger vision, to grow this research and to list. Now we have 110 orchestras. Hopefully we can increase even more this year. Of course, uh, when it comes to diversity, is so much more layers that have to be added. Uh, but we can't talk about only women because this problem is not only for women. So we do, I do say that I touch diversity. We touch diversity on the research, uh, but there is so many more things that we have to look um, at in order to have a full picture. But if just with this picture, it becomes very clear there is a lot of work to be done
0: absolutely the 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 findings you know would have really uh, continued my energy and my work if we were seeing that of programming were by men, historical men, 60, 70. But it wasn't even that. There were numbers in the 80th percentiles, even 90th percentiles. I really had a visceral reaction to to reading that data. I wonder if you were surprised by the findings.
3: Yes. I was shocked. And I am still shocked, you know, uh, because I think until... I'm going to call some big names here. (sighs) Anyway, until two years ago, the Vienna Philharmonic, for example, had zero women, zero people of color in their programs. Excuse me. And then they are being sponsored by big names, big companies. And I think, uh, I don't know, I think it's time everybody gets on board. Uh, It has to be, because otherwise... And and I, I'm sorry, And then my strategy, our strategy is what I like to call positive shame. <laughs> <laughs> so we should be positive, positively shamed that we are not doing enough and therefore we should start to make Yeah, I am always surprised. Um, you probably saw the report. So you saw that Chicago Sinfonietta is the best of... Uh, example of best practice because you mm-hmm. know they they do such a great work of promoting not only equality but diversity and having incredible programs super happy audiences uh, and 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 their commitment is is should be just copied <laughs> by uh, organizations all over the world i think
0: you mentioned the chicago symphonietta i'm i'm instantly thinking about their album uh project w which featured not just women composers but women composers from diverse backgrounds and moreover diverse musical aesthetics you know there's a piece on that album by uh a composer named Rena Esmail that I think is just so, so brilliant. I bring that up because there are so many intersections in this data that I found interesting. You know, you break down um, historical women composers versus living women composers and women composers of color. I wonder if you could uh, speak to some of those findings. What were your reactions to seeing that there's a disparity not only in representation for women composers, but women composers who are actually alive.
3: Yeah, uh, and that's also another... <sighs> we think things are better. You know, uh, we can't talk about uh, equality. We need to talk about equity and intersectionality for women is always a problem. You, uh, and uh, I'm very conscious of not promoting only white women because that, that's that's not equal either. Uh, and it's very telling that when you start looking at the data, of course, there are always going to be more presence of women. If we think of living composers, uh, they have a much better chance. But even for living composers, when because I look at the whole spreadsheet, <laughs> thousands of rows, and and it's quite funny to 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 notice that some names just repeat all mm-hmm. over the world. Uh, because it's a trend or because uh, some big orchestra played and then the others will, uh, you know, or last year was Florence Price was her year, like the previous year was Clara Schumann in terms of historical composers. And But I'm not going to name leading composers, but there are like a handful of them who appear a lot. Um, but I don't find that there is a, a real representation of, the amount of talent that is out there i think the, there is a people sometimes go for the I'm, I'm not generalizing but people go for the easy choice the ones that oh no that composer was played by the orchestra right. so we we are guaranteed to but there's i don't see a, a a kind of a active search uh some some places do but an active search for developing or bringing them in and uh, and it's quite interesting as well because uh, we had an event at the Obert Hall when we launched the the report and there were many composers there and one of them said, we don't want mentorship, we want opportunities. Because, mm-hmm. you know, they just oh, let's mentor these women. No, no need to mentor these women. <laughs> you need to just, <laughs> you need to give them an opportunity. And right. And they say, oh, yeah, but it's a, no, we don't think of gender, we think of talent. Oh, Scott, this this is another argument that is very, you know, fault in so many ways.
0: I wonder if you've received much pushback, you know, and and when, when I engage these conversations, eventually there's someone... Typically, a man. I feel comfortably saying, "Oh, why aren't we just censoring the music? Why are you making this political?" You know, people just quickly get uncomfortable. Have you experienced much of that pushback?
3: Yeah, I do. I just ignore them. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I don't see any point of interacting or in, in, in kind of having any conversation with these people. I I would rather have conversation with, with people who are interested to learn. And and then these people, they they have set... Their minds into something, and it is just you just waste your energy, waste your energy. Uh, so, I don't really, but there's always, oh, yes, oh, these women, and then somebody actually <laughs> on Twitter, and, and they're so naive sometimes the comments that they saw, oh, it's very difficult for male composers right now because, oh, women are taking all the, all the chances, they're like, well made. Give it another century. (laughs) Maybe it's your (laughs) chance again. I don't know. I mean, it's a bit entitled and they they don't even listen to themselves. So at no point, I, I don't have time for it.
0: We began this conversation talking about the repetition, saying the same thing over and over again. And, you know, as annoying as that can be, on the other hand, I think about how, as musicians, repetition is really how we hone our craft, you know, practice and that sort of thing. So, I guess from that perspective, do you have reason to expect uh, positive change in the future, especially considering the fact that we aren't just talking through our emotions, we have the data to show the, the disparity?
3: I'm very optimistic. I'm a very optimistic person, normally. Um, but I I think this in this case, we can't just rely on optimism That all. And at the same time, I say that I'm tired of conversations, but it doesn't mean I will stop talking. <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> there is a, a great book by uh, Seth Godin over here. I think it's called The Tri- Tribes. Um, and he says this, you know, you have to tell your story a million times because you never know who have not heard it yet. And, and I know this is my job as an artist. Uh, I can't be tired of talking about I just wish uh, change was uh, faster. I I want to be optimistic, uh, but I think it, it requires drive from all of us. And now when I say all of us, uh, I think there is sometimes a sense that audiences or people going to concerts or they expect like, organizations like Donne or somebody like yourself, oh, but they have a platform. They should be doing something. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a problem as well because we are all responsible. So um, there's no point complaining if you're not doing something. And I think as an audience goer, you there's a lot you can do, you know, because you can write to your favorite orchestra, you can write to your concert hall, you can write to a radio station and you can actively be involved and you should because we can't um, just expect change to happen because there are bigger people doing things and therefore, oh, I'm just going to hook into them. And then I don't think this is enough anymore because um, there is a danger that things just might go back to how things were. Is Right. We, we can never rest. It's very, you know, being a, a, a soprano is already a restless job, I tell you, because, you know, there are many of us. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but being an activist, that's it, you'll never rest again, because uh, uh, it, it never goes away. And once, as I said before, once you've seen the inequality and once you've seen the little things that you do that can make a difference, then you are committed for life. And I think we should all be like that because we are all privileged in some ways. And if we have a little bit of privilege, we need we have to have the commitment to help somebody else to be where we are or or something. We need to do something. And I don't feel this commitment yet from all members of the industry. I see people like me, like yourself, like with a lot of passion, with a lot of drive, um, not so much financial support to to back us up. And then we are driving on passion and anger. <laughs> so right. It's like a 50-50 because you are not going to give up. Uh, and I won't and, and people like us, they don't. But I don't think it's fair that um, I think the, the industry is much bigger. It has uh, more resources. And those people with resources should be joining us to meet, create bigger impact. Um, that's what I think. So I I am optimistic, but I am also conscious, very aware that if I stop, it might, whatever I did might disappear in a couple of years. And in 10 years time, maybe if I was in a coma or something, I would wake up and say, oh, are we still talking about this?
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Oh, that's surprising because it's and it's a lot of work to do. You, you know. Oh
0: yeah, <laughs> I'm sure oh, yeah. you know. Yeah. Well, please don't go into a coma. I mean, we need you.
3: No, 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 no. And <laughs> uh, just to tell you a funny story, which is not funny. Uh, you probably know of Brazilian composer Chiquinha Gonzaga. Oh yeah, Francisca Gonzaga. Yeah, so yeah. she. Uh, was a phenomenal figure not only in Brazilian music but in Brazilian history. You know that she her mother was a freed slave. He left her arranged marriage, um, even having three children because her husband would not allow her to play the piano and then she had to live as a single woman, well, divorcee, uh teaching composing music, uh, selling music, she started the first copyright society in Brazil, she was a she fought for um, abolition of slavery in Brazil, she was a feminist, whatever she was composing until she was 82, I never heard her name Uh, the first carnival march ever written that we all sing as children was written by her, I didn't know uh, she kind of was a big influence on Villa Lobos on the beginning of Choro. That is a very mm-hmm. specific, beautiful genre of Brazilian music that later developed into Bossa Nova. Anyway, enough to to to. Uh, I only heard her name properly because beginning of the century they did a soap opera about her in Brazil. It was big soap opera miniseries kind of thing. But they chose a white woman to play her.
2: Mm.
3: She was the daughter of a, an African American woman who was a slave in Brazil, and then they just portrayed her. and 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 then you once again you missed a huge you missed a huge opportunity to give representation <laughs> on the screen. Like in Brazil, right. soap operas are really big, really big, um, and things like that just make me really angry. <laughs>
0: I want to return to something that you said previously, you know, this is all of our work. I think it's really easy to, let's say, blame the music directors, but the music directors say, well, the artistic directors are the ones. And then the artistic directors will say, well, it's the board who's suggesting these things, you know, and it just goes on and on. You know, one of my thoughts, and some people consider it radical, is to really put more onus on the musicians of these ensembles than we do if a musician is a part of an orchestra that only schedules white men for an entire season the musicians should be standing up you know saying that they aren't happy with this I, I wonder what your thoughts are to to that approach should we be putting maybe i shouldn't use the word blame but more onus on the actual musicians of these ensembles um
3: yes as well definitely but i don't know i think um Sometimes these musicians and I and I speak with lots of love to all of them because sometimes many of them are not even aware. I have many colleagues who play in big orchestras who are also don't know. I, I mention okay, I, I had an education in the past four years. I don't expect people, my colleagues, to know all the women I know <laughs> by name. <laughs> it would be unfair. But I, sometimes I mention some big names and they go no. Never heard of it. And then I go, okay, that's it. (laughs) Uh, So provided these uh, musicians are well-informed, yes. But I think it's more important to make sure that the boards or the people with power in the organizations, the boards are diverse. Mm -hmm. And you can't just have like a a board with only white men or white people kind of, oh, let's program something really diverse. (laughs) Because, I mean... We need uh, I think the the change needs to come from the top.
2: Right. Uh,
3: and and it should be a priority. It should be compulsory. It should, you know, they shouldn't get funding uh, if they didn't comply and things like that because, you know, I, I can speak for women. I can speak for um an immigrant woman. Um, but I, I can't speak for a, as a black woman or a gay woman. I need to hear from them. If I want to to talk in 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 their names and um, and if I want to represent them, I can't guess. <laughs> I can't just right. read something and say, oh yeah, I learned everything. It's, it's it's really not my place. I need to give that space to to somebody like that to come and and speak. And I think until we have that, oof, it's hard. It's it's, yeah. it's very hard. And and sometimes. I even have, because um, after the we published the report, and this is a sad news. Uh, I wrote, I personally wrote to all orchestras. I wrote. It wasn't like somebody writing from Don. No, I personally wrote. I, I introduced myself. I invited them. I think two orchestras got back to me mm. so far. Wow. So uh, that's you know it's a bit sad because it's a missed opportunity. I will keep trying. <laughs> we will keep trying because uh, I hope it comes to a point when you know uh, people always ask me what what's the what's the plans for Donny and as well is to be in a position that we are not we can't be ignored. So yep. you either are with us or you are on the wrong side of the fence. <laughs> you know, so that's the, that's the dream. Because when you're a bit small and people can just ignore you, and oh, the, the, she's making her little noise over there. So let's make big noise.
0: Absolutely. How can people <laughs> uh, access this report and learn more about Donne? Uh,
3: so the report is on our website. I don't know if I can spell it www.donne-uk.org under uh, what we do and then there is a tab you go down it says research so we have all the reports for the past four years there and we also do a a much smaller look into pop music and uh, film music as well to check the presence of women in pop and because also there is this much better for women now, really. Um, And what people don't realize sometimes, because I know I started this with classical music, but because it's my life and my career and but classical composition now is has so many different ways of of having a job. For example, you can write for video games. You can write Mm -hmm. for series. You can uh, do sound design. It's, it's uh, endless opportunities for a composer to work, especially now uh, in the age we are at. And there are lots of women, especially when I pu- when we published the the film music, which had again five five percent of women. Uh, there was a lot of talk on Twitter, including one composer, a female composer, said, oh, this is absurd. I have several male colleagues who keep saying to me they're juggling too many jobs in film. Uh, And then you see, once again, the story is repeating itself, I guess, in other genres as well.
0: It's easy for us to, um, you know, what I wanted to close with, it's easy for us to talk about what should be included. I think the part of the conversation that uh, institutions especially don't always engage is who should be put on the shelf or maybe who can we uh, put to the side. I certainly have opinions (laughs) on that, but I wonder how you engage that part of the conversation. How do you encourage people to think about the historical white male composers who maybe we can, you know, save for a little while for the sake of this diversity that we're looking for?
3: Oh my God! No, you're gonna take Beethoven out of the. <laughs> um, <laughs> I always try to to say, well, inclusion doesn't mean exclusion, right? Um, mm-hmm. In in principle, but you need to free some space. <laughs> you need to free some space, uh, and I think as a a rule, we any organization shouldn't be programming only white dead male. For for concert, this should be like a basic rule, I guess, yeah. that everybody could follow, uh, and all of us artists as well. When we are, if we have uh, the the power to create a program from our recital, just maybe create. When I was in Brazil, uh, we uh, when I was studying, there was a rule that we had to follow. Whatever recital we gave. We had to include a Brazilian composer, so we didn't even we didn't even question. We just knew we had to do it. So I think uh, we have to engrave something like that, and organi- organizations should have this as a rule number one: this program only white, that male. No, that no, I can't do it. So, and then we take somebody out and then introduce somebody new. Uh, you know, something that will align nicely with the program. Uh, and then do your research and and make sure that every time you bring somebody new, you can't just bring the same pieces once again because then it's laziness. Uh, I th- I think my rule with this just there is a world of amazing music out there. Absolutely, choices you know for anybody and and I and I to any organization listening to this, I really invite them to to get in touch to join us, maybe become a member at one of our memberships, we have people, experts in repertoire really ready to help, to just create, okay, here's like 10 pieces, 20 pieces you can, so the the work is done for you if you don't have time, but just don't don't do it just because, oh, I don't even know where to start. That's not an excuse, And, and also we have to ask ourselves and all organizations, don't you want more people in your in your rooms, in your um, concert halls? How many people are we leaving out because we are playing just this limited genre that pleases these people? Well, okay, we know it does. But how about the rest of the world? You know, here in the UK, um, they call, we don't call... People of color, there is a, a terminology now, the accepted terminology is uh, people of the global majority. Mm. And it's really interesting to think about it because, and I remember when I was reading about because this is what they are, they are the global majority. <laughs> and then I was like, wow, this is so, and, and it's such a beautiful uh, way of waking up <laughs> as a white person uh, to say, how can we accept this? how we are not inviting more people to to join the audiences, to feel excited about listening to a concert, to seeing themselves reflected, to hearing bits of their culture in the music. So it should be a party of, of, of you know, so I would be so excited if I was in charge of putting a program together. You just wouldn't know who to keep out, to be honest, uh, in terms of new people to bring in. It's the desire to change that's what it needs to exist, I guess.
0: There by Chiquinha Gonzaga, a tune called Gaúcho, performed by the New School Brazilian Choro Ensemble. The the date that's listed here for that piece of music is 1895. So we're talking about music that's over 100 years old, working on 150 years old, but has an aesthetic that you know gets that groove going, mm-hmm. gets, get, gets your get your body feeling a little bit. When we talk about decolonizing classical music. You know, again, as as I as I, you know, get on my soapbox week after week. Yes, we have to talk about jazz and the spiritual and even extend that to R and B and hip hop and those things. But even if you go back into the historical music and uh checking out music by these um uh Afro-Brazilian uh women, you know, with Chiquinha Gonzaga being one, it's an aesthetic that still somehow has an aesthetic relevance that I think could really help bring in new audiences and expanded audiences into places like Carnegie into classical radio if I was working at Apple Music you know working on this classical app I would make sure stuff like this was included just to keep as many ears as as possible Chiquinha Gonzaga isn't a name that I was able to 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 spit out even just a year ago you know as as my mm-hmm. knowledge expands you know as uh everyone's knowledge expands i hope that we're just really considering the importance of putting this sort of music in that bucket of of classical
1: do you think they're going to
0: i would i would hope so i mean if they're serious about their work <laughs> mm-hmm. and really because at the end of the day it is classical it just is we, we, we aren't talking about a different genre we're just talking about classical music through that brazilian lens that I, historical brazilian lens
1: because i you know I was just. I want the mess. <laughs> I want to know what you really thought.
0: You know, yeah. What 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 I really think is that music like that is a necessity for organizations who want to move forward. And then, of course, when we're talking about again the work of Donne and uh, and highlighting women composers, you can't make the excuse of there not being women composers' music to to pull from. That's that's just false. Mm-hmm. And you can't even. Make the excuse that, oh, well, we're looking for something that sounds like this or something that sounds like that from the Julia Perry we were listening to today to the uh, Dabrinka Tabakova and uh, Jenny Brandon. And now we have this uh, very flavorful, well-seasoned piece by Chakinya Gonzaga there's so much music out there by women and there's really no excuse for those numbers to look the way they are. Less than 8% of music performed by orchestras in the United States and Europe by by women, we got to shift that. And I think just highlighting the diversity of music that exists solely among uh, women composers of today and, and past is a, a really great first and maybe even second step. I think so too. All right, well, we're going to uh, jump into the Triloquy this week where we're going to talk about, you know, uh, how, what is it? High tone places, you know, highbrow and that sort of thing. And uh-huh. the, the piece of music that came to mind on that topic was a tune that I love hearing from Nina Simone. My baby just cares for me. She's talking about somebody who ain't interested in all that fancy stuff, just interested in her. A beautiful song, a beautiful uh, uh, thing to think about, and a beautiful way to get us into the fourth movement this week. Let's take a listen. Shout out to Nina Simone all day. For that track, I feel like the drummer is also telling the story. <laughs> I just love the groove that the drummer put you in there. Uh, but we're here in the uh, uh, final movement. And I wanted to talk about uh, a recent conversation that I had with someone. So I I dialogue with uh, lots of folks in the industry about different approaches to expanding audiences, giving you know more folks an opportunity to experience classical music, X, Y, and Z, and what we need to do there. In having that conversation, I often talk about dismantling and disrupting decorum, trying to uh, get folks to stop thinking about what should I wear, uh, th- those sort, you know, th- th- those sorts of just things that we've attached to the classical music experience. And I got some interesting pushback from uh, from someone I was talking about this to. Basically, they were saying we have to give people of all stripes, of all backgrounds, uh, cultures, etc, the opportunity to have elevated experiences. And that's something that I've been thinking about for a while, you know, just to make myself accountable and to put myself in check, thinking about the fact that we may be present uh, preventing people from experiencing something that they could appreciate, through that lens of tearing everything down. A while ago, maybe you remember, we talked about the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra was featuring, I think, Jeezy or somebody on Mm -hmm. one of their concerts. And Jeezy was saying that they were excited about putting on a tuxedo and, and looking this way and performing in a, in a different sort of venue. So it puts me in the middle of, of this thinking, should we be dismantling and tearing down some of the status quo, the peripheral status quo? Again, things like, what do I wear to the concert? Stay quiet and don't clap until it's appropriate. Should Are we um, taking away something valuable from people who haven't experienced those things before? by trying to get rid of them are we throwing out the baby with the bathwater so to speak by trying to disrupt the decorum of concert spaces considering that there are some folks from you know marginalized existences who would love to put on a fancy gown and go into a concert hall and have that traditional experience
1: on occasions i like to get dressed up and make sure all my whiskers are facing the same direction mm-hmm. and you know and and if i got a date if they do that too, that's you know you you, you cosplay it. You know? Sure, sure. <laughs> I think it's more important to just have a come as you are, come right. as you want to uh, to to be there. Some people are not comfortable in the these you know dress up clothes. And there's a quote from a movie that I will modify to use here. The original quote is: "Beware of business ventures that require a change of wardrobe." Sure. Beware. Concert events that require you to buy new clothes.
0: Beware, <laughs> 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 and that really we can extend that to the performer's point of view as well. If you have to go buy something, the the number of paquet. Uh, vests, you know, those those, uh, tiny, fancy white vests Mm -hmm. that you wear under the tailcoat that I've had to buy all of the bow ties that have been lost. You know, they talk about hair ties just existing wherever, (laughs) all of the bow ties that exist across the United States, you know, that that I've lost somewhere. It's exactly what you said earlier. It feels like a cosplay. Mm -hmm. We aren't coming as us. We're coming as a version of us that can fit into this space where we can pretend for just a few hours that this is who we are and what we like to be. Look, we all like to look nice and and do nice things every now and again. I guess my critique is how we come to defining things as highbrow or high tone, you know, elevated experiences. I think there are just two or three or four sentences (laughs) between that and white supremacy, you know, this idea of what is good. What is elevated? What what is better? What is fancy? All of those things. I'm I'm wary of it, and I think that mm. we gotta pay attention to that aspect of the conversation. Because while I love the idea again of seeing black folks in their Sunday best at the opera house, I saw lots of it when I went to go see Fire Shut Up in My Bones. I I just don't know. Uh, how important it is to uphold that aspect of the tradition. Keep the music on the stage, you know, let, let's let's not even talk about the programming, but at the very least, we got to open up the doors and, you know, not put that level of respectability on just walking into the space. That, for, for me, that is just a fundamental part of the, of the problem, you know?
1: Mm-hmm. It seems like uh, the folks who enjoy getting dressed up or perhaps that's their daily uniform, you gotta be, uh, you you gotta be ready to sit next to somebody in shorts and Crocs. Yeah,
2: because
0: <laughs> it'll happen. Come on, Crocs, and that's gonna be me. Hey, as yeah. soon as as soon as the temperature gets
1: above forty consistently here, mm-hmm. that's gonna be the uniform you will see outside. It's gonna be shorts and Crocs.
0: I guarantee you. As soon as it hits forty. You watch. I've I've been in many a boardroom in New York City with my Crocs on. I'm not my my feet not gonna be hurting at the end of the day, you know. But
1: <laughs> oh, you're not even sitting here on Zoom.
0: Hey, no, exactly. When I'm out and about, yeah, the Crocs have already been on. So that, that. <laughs> you know what I might
1: do is get like a cardboard
0: cutout and draw a suit on it and just have a notch for my for my head. <laughs> but you know that's a that's a cosplay too. Yeah, you know. So what well, we gotta you know at the end of the day, i, I just. I think it's an interesting conversation. If y'all have thoughts on the idea of dismantling the idea of an elevated experience or upholding it for the sake of people who, you know, have, have maybe have never experienced anything like that, let me know. But, you know, from from where I'm sitting, the approach to triloquy has always been to disrupt that decorum. I even think about the aesthetic that we have been working for, the dialogue type of aesthetic that we have been working for over these past uh, few years that's different than the traditional classical music radio presentation. You know, the language that we use, the the way that we engage, I feel like that was sort of the, the verbal dialogue based shifting of decorum that we were always trying to engage in this project. I see dismantling those status quo around specifically what you wear, but also how you act and those sorts of things as being another version of, of that.
1: So, uh, on air, were you one to announce BWV list, uh, listings and Kerschel listings and all that whenever there was all those numbers and letters after a piece of music? Do you
0: share that too? Keys? Only, well, keys, I'm, I don't know. So really when you talk about the BWVs, uh, the the Bach Versaik Vers or I, I can't remember the the but anyway, it's the, it's the cataloging of the music. If I just want to be cheeky or or be extra cute, mm-hmm. I would, but never as a as just this is what this is, but sort of making fun of myself or not taking myself too seriously.
1: So we seem to have jettisoned that in radio. There's not a whole lot of catalog listings, uh, listings, and not always keys and such. Mm-hmm. What is the apparel equivalent? of catalog numbers that we can that, that will that we're we're going to see go first. What's what's going to be the first and, and I'm not talking like just ties. What 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 do you think is going to be the the next accepted transition in uh, non-cosplay concert attendance. Mm-hmm,
0: that's interesting. I think that for the most part you see a little bit of it all in the concert hall these days, you know, especially if I'm there, I'm just coming as I am. I think, you know, it's not like concert venues are barring people from entering if they aren't looking fancy from, from, sure. Maybe yet. But I I think, I guess what I'm getting at is dismantling the very idea of something being elevated or, or fancy or, Mm. or, or, or better than, I think it's just, a societal level thing that we have to break down. And orchestras, concert venues, opera houses can play into that or, or help continue that dialogue by just normalizing, you know, clap when you want and uh, and and wear what you want. Maybe that is a part of how things are marketed or or in the uh, advertisements or announcements, just welcoming people. in that way, mm. people uh, institutions just need to engage that part of the conversation because you have folks out here who think it's good to uphold that status quo with those things. And I, and I hear that argument. I just see it slightly differently.
1: No, I'm, I, I see your perspective. I I appreciate it.
0: Yeah. (laughs) And I appreciate you (laughs) and I appreciate everyone listening. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll see you next week.